Good evening, everyone. Thanks very much for coming along tonight to Brian Dillon's uh, talk on essayism. My name's Jo Lanyon, and I am a third of the Art Writers Group. And we've been um, organising lectures and evening classes and events in Bristol, Plymouth and Cornwall, trying to explore um, the ideas of what art writing is now. And when we first put a call out um, to our artists, who are such as Mary Patterson, who's currently in residence at Arnold Feeney, and Patrick Langley, who's working down in St Ives, we had a real range of different material submitted from poetry on one side all the way through to journalism on the other, which summarised quite um, vaguely what art writing can be today. Um, I'm really delighted to welcome Brian Dillon, who, who also earns his living in various ways, from lecturing to writing books to curating and providing articles for magazines and newspapers. Um, and his writing style has also been extremely varied in terms of um, literary criticism and theory, uh, fiction and non-fiction and memoir. And his subjects have also been as broad um, from... And he has the ability to make uh, the kind of driest, driest sounding of, of subjects incredibly personal and emotional from um, dealing with ruins and hypochondria um, to his um, current book on essayism, which he's going to be discussing with us today. So I'm delighted to pass you over to Brian. Um, he'll sp speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll be really pleased to, to take some questions. Thanks very much, Joe, um, and uh, thank you all for coming. Um, it's great to be introduced to somebody who um, can make the driest subject um, interesting. <laughs> Just let's wait and see, shall we? Um, it's a, a great pleasure to, to be here to talk in, in this particular context, um, apart from the fact that um, I, I like very much coming to do talks um, at the Ar Arnolfini. It's very nice to be part of um, a context in which art writing and maybe that phrase is something um, to which I'll return later. Um, it's recent history uh, and, it, and its possible futures. Um, but to speak in a context where um, I know that uh, you have Maria Fusco coming um, next week, who's obviously been a very pivotal figure um, in recent years in this uh, uh, discipline, if, it, if that's what it is. Um, but also younger writers like Paddy Langley, um, who uh, was with us at the Royal College of Art uh, for a couple of years and is a really fantastic, uh, fascinating writer who I think is probably about to, um, to impress us all on a, on a strictly literary um, front as well as a, uh, as a critic. Um, when Joe first uh, invited me to be part of this uh, series... Um, there was really only one thing that I said I could talk about, um, and that's uh, the book that I've just finished. This book is with the printers right now, um, and it's called Essayism. And it comes out in about a month, so sadly, or maybe not sadly for you, the book is unavailable uh, as yet. Um, it started life as um, a series of questions, really, in my mind, probably about the field that I had entered into 
uh, 15 years ago or so. And as Joe says, that field, at least in my case, and I think that it's probably true for most of my friends who are art critics, that field is uh, especially hard to define. We talk now easily, I think, uh, of something called art writing. But I think that probably when I started writing, um, around 2000, 2001, um, it wasn't terribly clear what it was that I did or that my colleagues did. We called ourselves art critics some of the time. But we wrote, for example, if we wrote for magazines like Freeze. I think that when I started writing for Freeze, I started writing about philosophers like Alain Badiou and uh, Giorgio Agamben. I wrote about the history of zoos. Freeze asked me to write about the history of zoos, a subject that I knew nothing about until I uh, researched and wrote it. I think I wrote about the history of photo booths, which seemed to have something to do with at least visual culture. But I started writing not about art and not about artists, but about the kind of culture, literary, visual, philosophical, and everyday material culture, that seemed to be uh, the very stuff that contemporary artists were working with. In other words, um, I started from a position of a kind of um, amateur uh, attitude and a kind of hopefully curious attitude and an idea of curiosity is something that I'll come back to I think later on. So I think I began to have more recently a series of questions about what exactly this, this uh, form or this genre was that I'd ended up writing in. And the essay uh, as a form uh, as a literary form when I started writing this book I thought that I would write a great deal about uh, photo essays and film essays, and I've ended up, uh, sad to say, writing nothing about film essays and photo essays, or at least directly. But I hope that some of what I have to say in a moment bears upon the history of those genres and the contemporary possibilities of them also, as well as on the word or um, the book. Um, it seemed to me, it began to seem to me, that the essay was a an ancient kind of venerable literary form that might be a way of thinking about the perplexities of uh, contemporary writing that hovers between the literary world and the art world. And the essay, as you'll see as I go along, the essay has in some ways a very um, straightforward history as a literary form. It aspires to a particular kind of... Um, elegance or polishedness, and I find myself uh, attracted to that as an idea, but also repelled by it, repulsed by it, and flying to another extreme, which is wanting to undo that form of writing always, wanting to turn it into something much more fragmented, unpredictable, and uh, botched, crippled in some way. It seemed to me, or it's begun to seem to me, that if you were to, to talk about the essay today, as opposed to the long history of the essay, which I touch on in the book, but the book isn't a history of the essay, the long history of the essay that runs, for example, from Michel de Montaigne in, uh, in France in the 16th century, um, people like Francis Bacon and John Donne in this country, up through Thomas de Quincey, Charles Lamb, up to Virginia Woolf, uh, and so on, and up to the present day. If we were to think about that tradition today and ask ourselves where it has gone, there is a good deal of talk now about the essay as a form, as a form that especially suits our contemporary reading culture. 
maybe two or three years ago, newspapers and literary magazines were, especially in the US, were full of articles about the contemporary essay, about how the essay was the eminently readable and portable form of today. And there were kind of polemics written about this, um, notably David Shields' book, um, the title of which I've now entirely forgotten. Um, it's probably best forgotten, David Shields' book. It, it's, it's not, that's not true. David Shields argues in his book, um, Reality Hunger is the book, um, that the form of non-fiction, of contemporary non-fiction, what is sometimes called creative non-fiction, is the really pressing and important literary mode today, precisely because it bears on the real, um, on material everyday life, on truth, on questions of truth, and maybe we are particularly attuned to these questions of truth uh, more recently. But there's another defense of, the contempor of contemporary nonfiction of the essay, which is to say that it suits our reading habits. It's not just about what those writers can write about, but it suits our reading habits because it is uh, a self-contained, as it were, portable literary device or form that suits the sh supposedly short attention spans uh, of today's reading public. That seems to be uh, kind of a boring argument and sort of a nonsense, really. Um, you could easily say, on the other hand, that our reading uh, attention spans have lengthened in recent years. There are really, really good arguments for saying that the, the very common argument that says we now read only fragments, we read haphazardly, we read uh, like kind of grazing animals, we move from place to place, that actually, at the same time, there is, there's a kind of lengthening of, um, of attention spans, a commitment to long narratives, and especially to long non-fiction narratives. Another kind of influence in terms of my thinking about the essay, a reason for talking about the essay, um, has to do with my history at a magazine called Cabinet, which I hope some people know, which was founded in 2000 uh, in New York and is dedicated to a kind of interdisciplinary meeting place, meeting point between artists, because we, the, the magazine uh, was founded really out of a kind of artistic culture and we work with artists on artist projects in every issue. Um, but we also work with academics, creative writers, uh, interested amateurs, um, whoever we can find to respond in each case, in each quarterly issue of the magazine, to a particular topic. And the topic might be electricity or hair or education or ruins or dust and so on. So we, we come up with a kind of thematic and then we ask numerous disciplines, um, numerous types of individual writers and artists uh, to respond to that. And it's founded on a kind of idea of curiosity, an idea that something has been lost uh, historically in academia and in the wider intellectual and, and creative culture at large. Something is lost when we no longer have those places where the amateur voice and the voice that speaks to amateurs, the voice that speaks outside of the academy, outside of the specialism, when we no longer have that available. And so Cabinet's an attempt to kind of reinvigorate a sense um, of intellectual capaciousness and generalism. And that generalism, that sense of uh, a mind wandering, a mind wandering between disciplines, is exactly at the heart of the essay. The essay is a form that wants to wander. Um, the essayist starts sometimes from a position of, uh, um, of expertise, but the skill of the essayist is to take you uh, 
on Roland Barthes talks about uh, the writer as somebody, or the reader rather, as somebody who acts like a ruminant animal, you know, who goes for a walk in a field, grazes here and there. Um, the essayist tries to take you on this in a similarly kind of uh, unpredictable uh, journey, but there's nonetheless a logic. And in a way, what I'm trying to grasp in this book, which I will start reading you bits of in a moment, um, is this kind of tension between the essay as something that, that aspires to clarity, to a kind of measuredness, to a kind of elegance and precision. And on the other hand, the founding condition of that kind of knowledge and presentation of knowledge is at the same time a kind of curiosity and a kind of vagrancy, a wandering, a drift. And so it seemed to me that um, the essay would be something worth uh, taking seriously um, and trying to find a way of writing about that did justice um, to some of the great essayists um, that uh, have inspired me uh, as a writer and as a critic. And in some respects, the, those essayists and, and critics are fantastically predictable. Um, it's no surprise to me, unfortunately, that I have ended up writing about, for the umpteenth time, people like Roland Barthes and Walter Benjamin, and a kind of familiar roster of, of some academic writers. But the real challenge was to think about actually sometimes quite mainstream writers who seem to offer a particular way of approaching the real and the material world. It's turned into a different kind of book along the way, but that, I think, will become sort of obvious as, as we go along. It's turned into something um, uh, much more personal in some ways. Um, and a lot sadder, unfortunately. Um, the essay has something, I think, to do, for me, with a long history of writing about melancholia um, and about certain kinds of mental state uh, uh, in general. But I, I might... I'll save the miserable stuff for about 20 minutes' time or so. So, um, I'm going to read some of uh, this from the book itself. And I think I want to start um, here. I'm going to start at the start. And the book starts with a list. One of the things that the book is about, I think, is the idea of writing as a kind of miscellany. Um, the sense that the essay can... Uh, encompass all manner of disparate materials, that the essay, in a sense, is like the old-fashioned cabinet of curiosities. It's a place in which um, objects, ideas, entities from numerous different uh, geographical and temporal areas come together. And the list seems to be, to me, to be a really useful way to think about um, that. So, this is how the book begins on essays and essayists. And I have to take a bit of a breath before reading this. You'll, you'll discover why as we go along. On the death of a moth, humiliation, the Hoover Dam, and how to write. An inventory of objects on the author's desk and an account of wearing spectacles, which he does not. What another learned about himself the day he fell unconscious from his horse, of noses, of cannibals, of method, diverse meanings of the word lumber, many vignettes published over decades in which the writer or her elegant stand-in described her condition of dislocation in the city and did it so blithely that nobody guessed it was all true. A dissertation on roast pig, a heap of language, a tour of the monuments, 
a magazine article that in tone and structure so nearly resembles its object or conceals it that flummoxed readers depart in droves, a sentence you could whisper in the ear of a dying man, an essay upon essays, on the author's brief and oblique friendship with the great jazz singer, a treatise on melancholy, also on everything else, a species of drift or dissolve at the level of logic and language that time and again requires the reader to page back in wonder, how did we get from there to here, before the writer's skill or perhaps his inattention. A sermon on death preached in the poet's final days on earth before a picture of his own shrouded person. The metaphoric power of same, the womb a grave, the grave a whirlpool, death's hand stretched to save us. A long read, a short history of decay, a diary's prompt towards self-improvement, to sew on my buttons and button my lip. That's a quote from Susan Sontag. On a dancer arrayed like an insect or a ray of light, love alphabetized, life alphabetized, every second of a silent clown's appearance on screen dissected. We commit a cruelty against existence if we do not interpret it to death. On the cows outside the window, their movement and mass, their possible emotions. What happened next will amaze you. Upon a time, a dutiful thing, sat and judged, set rather, and judged by teachers. Proof because proof needed of what? Compliance, competence, comprehension, proper meanness of ambition. But later, discovered in the library and under the bedclothes, sparks or scintillations, stabs at bewilderment, some effort or energy flung at the void, and style, too. Scurrilous entertainments, a writing that's all surface, torsion, and poise. Something so artful it can hardly be told from disarray. An art, among others, of the sidelong glance, obliquities, digressions. An addiction to arduous learning, a study of punctuation marks, their meaning, their morality. Seven Dada manifestos, 41 false starts, the writer's technique in 13 theses. An account of what passed through the author's mind in the second before a stagecoach crash, somewhere on the road between Manchester and Glasgow in the summer after Waterloo. In the second or third summer after Waterloo. The writing of the disaster, confessions, cool memories, a collection of sand, curiosities, the philosophy of furniture, an account of the late eclipse. What was it like to fly high above London through silver mist and hail when flying was still new? The answer, innumerable arrows shot at us down the august avenue of our approach. That's a quote from Virginia Woolf, from this great essay by Virginia Woolf called Flying Over London, in which she flies over London, in which she gets in a tiger moth plane and she's taken on a, a flight above the city, and it's raining, and there's hail, and there are clouds, and she describes the streets below, and the people below, and the airfield as she comes back to land, and at the end, in the very final sentence, she reveals that she never took off in the first place. The weather was too bad, and she's made the whole thing up. Imagine a type of writing so hard to define that its name should be something like an effort, an attempt, a trial, surmise or hazard, followed likely by failure. Imagine what this writing might rescue from disaster and achieve at the levels of form, texture, style, and therefore, though some might cavil at therefore, 
at the level of thought, not to mention feeling. Picture, if you can, its profile on the page from a solid, uninterrupted spate of argument or narrative to isolated promontories of text, fragments, these composing in their sum the archipelago of a work or a body of work. The page and estuary dotted at intervals with typographical buoys or markers, and all the currents or sediments in between, sermons, dialogues, lists, and surveys, small eddies of print or whole books construed as single essays, a shoal or school made of these. Listen for the possible cadences this thing might create, oratund and authoritative, ardent, fizzing, slow and exacting to the point of pain or pleasure, halting, vulnerable, tentative, brutal, peremptory, a shuffling or amalgam of all such actions or qualities. An uncharted tract or plain, and yet certain ancient routes allow us to pilot our way through to the source and then out again, adventuring. I dream about essays and essayists, real and unreal authors, achieved and impossible examples of a genre that would what exactly? Perform a combination of exactitude and evasion that seems to me to define what writing ought to be, a form that would instruct, seduce and mystify in equal measure. Does that sound like what one might want from art or literature in general, not only from essays? Maybe one category stands for everything, defines what I want from all art forms. The boundaries of this thing, this entity or inclination that I admire, these I'll have to determine later. For now, it's enough, I hope, to acknowledge that what I desire in essays, all those essays named or alluded to in the list above, all of which, almost all of which, are real, is this simultaneity of the acute and the susceptible, to be at once the wound and a piercing act of precision. That makes it sound as though all I care for is style, that old-fashioned thing. And it might well be true. But isn't style exactly a contention with the void, an attitude or alignment plucked from chaos and nullity? Style as the prize, not a rule of the game. Style as sport, in another sense too, a botanical anomaly, an innovation, a mutant. But don't sports get assimilated in the end, aberrations accommodated, rogues, freaks and rarities corralled and tamed, curiosities neatly labelled, safely immured in vitrines and cabinets. I may have imagined all of this. I might be describing a form, a literary form, an artistic form that doesn't exist yet. I've no clue how to write about the essay as a stable entity or established class, how to trace its history diligently from uncertain origins through successive phases of literary dominance and abeyance to its present state as a modest publishing revenant, the genre on which many writers and artists' hopes are hung, many print and online columns filled with reflections on whether non-fiction is the new fiction, the essay the new novel, confession the new invention. I'm going to stop there for a moment. So I set up uh, hopefully, at the start of the book, this idea that the essay is a kind of agglomeration of things, of stuff, of materials, of disparate uh, materials. And at the same time, an idea that if you read about the origins of the, the essay, the history of the essay, 
everybody goes back to the verb itself, the French verb, essayer, to try, to attempt, uh, to enact a kind of trial or testing. Um, the essay is provisional. It sets out into the world with no clear sense of its end point, or at least it appears to do so. Uh, Theodore Adorno, in his great essay, uh, The Essay as Form, um, talks about the essay in these terms, which are very traditional, but he says the essay doesn't need to say everything that, has, that can be said about its subject. It's partial. So the essay starts, but it doesn't know where it stops. The essay has to do with knowledge, but not with encyclopedism or completism. The essay is always a partial reflection of a larger whole. It's content to say something fragmentary. It's content to imply the rest. It's content to imply the whole. Um, this also means that the essay has something to do with fragments. Um, and I'm not going to read you the section on fragments, but there is in the book uh, much later a section on the literary fragment um, and the aphorism. Um, these attempts that you get in writers like um, Pascal, Nietzsche, E.M. Uh, Cioran, the great Romanian-French uh, most miserable philosopher of all time, the man who was so miserable that Samuel Beckett couldn't go for dinner with him. They had a regular dinner date, and Beckett said, I can't do this anymore. Um, so I trace the kind of history of this fragmentary uh, writing but one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is not just not to tell a story about literary form or to engage in purely in a kind of literary criticism, but to find those places in um, some of the great essayists' work where an image appears, um, an image that is partly to do, that is partly trying, I think, to describe what the essay is capable of itself. And one of the places where I find this is in another essay by Virginia Woolf, um, which is called Thunder at Wembley. Um, let me find you this. It's from 1924. Um, and this section is called On Dispersal. You'll see why. In 1924, Virginia Woolf visited the British Empire Exhibition at Wembley with its palaces of industry, arts, and engineering, its screw-driven, never-stop railway, and its stadium, later home to the English football team. What she saw was a triumph of artifice to the point of oppression. The area was, sorry, I'm quoting Woolf now, the area was too small, the light too brilliant. If a single real moth strayed in to dally with the arc lamps, he was at once transformed into a dizzy reveller. If a laburnum tree shook her tassels, spangles of limelight floated in the violet and crimson air. Everything was intoxicated and transformed. Despite the imperial swagger, says Wolfe, notwithstanding the 12 million pounds spent on mounting the Empire Exhibition, for all its 27 million visitors, the spectacle is a sort of failure. Nature will have its way, just as history will, with the real empire, with domes, palaces, minarets, and pagodas. A storm is blowing at the edge of the site, invading ordered precincts devoted to entertainment and instruction. 
The massed bands of empire are marching towards the second city that the exhibition has raised on the outskirts of London. But dust swirls after them, and some appalling catastrophe impends. And so here's Wolf again. The sky is livid, lurid, sulfurine. It's in violent commotion. It is whirling water spouts of clouds into the air, of dust in the exhibition. Dust swirls down the avenues, hisses and hurries like erected cobras round the corners. Pagodas are dissolving into dust. Ferro concrete is fallible. Colonies are perishing and dispersing in spray of inconceivable beauty and terror, which some malignant power illuminates. Ash and violet are the colours of its decay. By the end of this essay, the crowd has fled inside frail pavilions and lightning, says Wolf, cracks like the white roots of trees, or rather lightning's cracks like the white roots of trees spread themselves across the firmament. The empire is perishing, the bands are playing, the exhibition is in ruins, for that is what comes of letting in the sky. Nature has won against the fake defences of imperial self-celebration, and it all starts with a swirl of dust, cobra-like in Wolfe's amazing image. And Wolfe's prose mimics the action of the storm, exploding delicately into flurries of image, sound, and metaphor. As so often in her writing, you have a sense of the world becoming particulate, everything airborne and efflorescent or friable, turning to dust, powder, shingle, sand. This writing seems to release spores. You could make a study, I'm sure people have made studies, of particles in Wolfe's novels and essays. Fog, rain, mist and dust recur in her writing, working their minute presence, accumulating on furniture and drifting against windows, falling in torrents or floating aloft in the air. These substances are sometimes associated with certain effects of light or its abeyance, perhaps most often with the victory of darkness, a pall falling over the land as she drives through Sussex at dusk, the chilling defeat of the sun in her essay on viewing an eclipse, the shadow that in the latter stages of the waves advances without mercy to cover houses, hills, trees, grassy rides and empty snail shells, and then snow lodges, running streams, and girls sitting on verandas with fans before their faces. When I think of Wolf, and especially when I think of Wolf's essays, I think of glyphic dust motes and powdery shadows denoting some vast personal or historical anxiety. I have a friend, a novelist, whose husband studies cosmic dust discovered at the South Pole. 30,000 tons of extraterrestrial material enter the Earth's atmosphere each year in the form of irregularly shaped particles or cosmic spherules and that have partially melted and so been greatly rounded and smoothed by the time they reach our planet's surface. Most of this stuff would be impossible to isolate, mixed as it has been with the teeming debris sloughed incessantly from the surface of the Earth itself, shed by the plants and animals that live on it and by the things that we have wrought to replace them. But at the bottom of the deepest seas, and in the Antarctic, the North Pole is too close to other dusty land masses, scientists rather, can dig into kilometres of compacted snow to find long untouched strata 
at which these tiny messengers from the stars have been preserved and out of which they can be extracted. In each cubic metre of snow that's uncovered, melted and filtered, there might be between 20 or 30 dust particles, and about half of these will prove to have come from asteroids or comets. Typically, they'll be composed of silicon, magnesium, iron, nickel and oxygen, although frequently, says the physicist, he finds himself staring at a vastly magnified fragment whose composition is quite mysterious. My friend told me that her husband analysed for weeks on end one such particle, which was transparent and almost spherical and corresponded, as it sat there on a slide under his microscope, to no substance he or his colleagues had so far come across in their research. And the husband carried on staring at it like this until one day, under the pressure of some test, or simply because it was time, the object disappeared. It had been an air bubble all along. Shall we take dust as the founding metaphor by which to broach the unruly topic of the essay? For sure, it sounds deathly, as though the form is lost to the world, consigned to libraries and anthologies, as if those are ever really dead. There have been times when the essay has seemed antique and moribund, fit only for the classroom and to become an object of nostalgia for the improving or diverting literature of the past. Essays, ancient or modern, can seem precious in their self-presentation, like things too well made ever to be handled. Touch them, however, and they're likely to come alive with the sedimented evidence of years. A constellation of glittering motes surrounds the supposedly solid thing, and the essay reveals itself to have been less compact and smooth than thought, but instead unbounded and mobile, a form with ambitions to be unformed which is to say that the venerable genre of the essay has something to do with the future, with a sense of constant dispersal and coalescence. And for what it's worth, my attachment to them, to essays, seems of the same conflicted order. I want essays to have some integrity, formal integrity, not moral integrity. I want their strands of thought and style and feeling to be so tightly woven they present a smooth and gleaming surface. And I want all this to unravel in the same moment and in the same work. I want the raggedness, the patchwork, a labyrinth's worth of stray threads. You might say that I'm torn. I said earlier that the essay seemed to me to have something to do um, with melancholia. I think that um, in... Well, maybe I'll just read you this section. It's hard to describe... um, a section of the book that is quite uh, not confessional. I can't stand that word. Um, It's just me. It's just about me. I'm not confessing anything in this. It's just an attempt to describe something. And I think it's something to do with um, the ways in which non-fiction writers um, give us No, there are only banal ways of saying, um, of making a a kind of critical point about this. In some ways, this is a kind of love letter, this book, to um, writers who, if you were being slightly, but only very slightly melodramatic about it, you would say are capable of saving people's lives, 
So I'm going to leave it at that. It's an appalling thing to say, isn't it? It's so, it's so banal. So all I can do is read you this rather than attempt to step back and, and describe it. This section is called On Consolation. And I think that one of the things that the book has turned out to be about is precisely the idea that writers and artists who might seem to, to be working and speaking to us at some considerable um, intellectual distance or poise may also turn out to be the writers and artists uh, who affect us most emotionally, most fundamentally. Um, and so this is an attempt, this is the first attempt in the book to begin to sketch a particular field um, in which, let's admit it, my life was saved by essayists. On consolation. The room in which I write is at present the room in which I mostly live. It was formerly the basement kitchen of the early Georgian house above, and from the window by my desk I look up at the spire of a medieval cathedral whose clock stopped months ago. Who knows when it will start again? I moved here in fits and starts, lacking time and money to furnish the place properly or get my belongings in order. The best part of a year later, things, myself included, have settled and the place and the life I've made here become calm, productive, joyful too. But the flat bears evidence in the form of 20 unopened boxes of the chaos in which I arrived. Hardly a day goes by without my thinking of Benjamin's famous essay about unpacking and categorizing his books. I am unpacking my library. No, I'm not. If you know Benjamin's essay, you'll know it's famous and very weird opening sentences. I am unpacking my library. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. It's a very strange thing to say. What's he trying to convince himself of? There's a wall full of books on the other side of my desk from the window, but the shelves went up too late to accommodate all the books I wanted around me so that I could write this book. The books of essays, the books that are essays, the books I've chosen to think of as essays, those I'd already crammed onto makeshift bookshelves in my bedroom at the back of the house. I sleep now surrounded by essays and essayists, the books shelved hastily and in no special order. Still, I could tell you roughly where this or that volume by Susan Sontag or Elizabeth Hardwick or Joan Didion might be found. During the nights I was first here, when I was still somewhat in disarray, this felt like a kind of consolation. In the summer of 2015, the life I had lived for a decade and a half came to an end. Whether it happened slowly or abruptly, I still can't tell. In such circumstances, things feel at once precipitous and protracted. A relationship in which I had lived most of my adult life, in which I had made myself and made myself a writer, was coming to an end. And though the end was my own doing and my own choice, I was now deep in a depression such as I had not known for almost 20 years. Each day, I sat at my desk in an office at the end of the garden and cried and smoked and tried to write tried to write this book, a book about essays, and each day finally gave myself up to fantasies of suicide. I would walk out of this suburb, along country lanes, to a secluded stretch of railway line, and lay my head on the track in the moonlight, or walk up the garden to the house right now in the sunshine, 
among the birds and the blossom and pick up a length of electrical extension lead from the shed on my way with which to hang myself upstairs through an open hatch to the loft. Better into the woods, not five minutes away, to be found by strangers. As the summer wore on and the agreed-upon date of my departure approached, I found myself lying, convincingly it seemed, to the therapist I saw each week, claiming I'd had fewer thoughts of suicide since last time. In reality, I didn't think I'd make it to autumn, but neither could I tell if such thoughts were real. I lied, too, about how long they'd been going on, pretended the desire, if that's what it was, to die, had arrived with the obvious crisis in my life. In fact, I'd been sitting down to work every day for years with the conviction that I must die soon. Writing, any sort of writing, had become a matter of distracting myself daily from the urge to destroy myself. Away from my desk, it was possible to feel quite normal, even happy, to suppress or ignore the sense of onrushing disaster. But it came back each morning as assuredly as the empty page and the empty screen did, and it needed to be driven away with words, words about any subject at all. I cannot say how much, if anything at all, of what had recently happened had to do with writing. I distrust writers who write straight away about their depression or other mental pain. I'm suspicious of them in ways I'm not, for example, when a writer describes her recent divorce or her present predicament with cancer. But why this doubt or scruple? I tell myself it's because I want from writing, from literature, or more conscious and a more, a more conscious and conspicuously worked evidence of distance and thought, transformation of the raw material. But what if I'm simply afraid of the version of honesty that comes with proximity to events, others' proximity, that is, or my own? On the other hand, it seems to me that all the most difficult moments of my life, and in particular the times I must acknowledge to have been marked by some kind of depression, have also involved a vexed relation to writing and reading, and especially to essays. The new crisis had come about for all the usual reasons that such things happen. Time and change and lack of change, problems unacknowledged in the face of love and contentment and security, as much as fear of the needed unknown. And the acknowledgement, my acknowledgement, after much time that my heart was already elsewhere, that it would take very little it was actually so much, to fall out of this life and into another, with all that implied of discovery and loss and guilt and relief. But it seemed to me too, at last, in a way I could not see in that summer of hate, that my Icarus fall came along with a crisis in writing, even in not writing. I've never suffered from writer's block, if such a thing exists. The anxieties of a freelance life have ensured I stayed productive throughout my 30s and into my 40s, with books and essays worked up and turned in like so much mounting evidence that, after all, I existed. It didn't matter, so I told myself, that there was no fame attached or great financial reward, all the better, even, in terms of maintaining a work schedule that I was sure was the only way to stave off the laziness, the depression that had ruined my 20s. My latest book, not this book, was years late, 
And though I told myself it was because I was busy with too many projects at once and that I could hardly expect to have the same energy as a decade before, I still felt like a failure, as though it was all slipping away. It's a cliché. The intimacy of writing and depression, writing as cause, cure, or acutest expression. Even more predictable when the melancholic in question is a man in middle age suddenly thrust upon the resources he has been for some time, overestimating. But, actually it says on the page, but, but, but. But I wasn't sure if I could read but, but, but and have it sound good. It's an insistent but, nonetheless. What if the cliché has been there all the time? What if the ruinous and rescuing affinity between depression and writing, between depression and the essay, is what got you into this predicament in the first place? What then? Will a description of how you made your way here, along the dry riverbeds of prose and self-pity, provide any clues as to how to get out of the gulch again? How to connect once more, if in fact you've ever really known it, with the mainstream of human experience? Such questions may seem too large, too embarrassing, though they've never been too grand for the essay, or they may seem too small, too personal, same answer. I think I'll stop there, if that's okay. Thanks. Thank you very much, Brian. Um, do we have any, any questions from the audience? Not at the moment. Um, oh, yes, we do. <laughs> the sort of question a 10-year-old would ask. Go for it. <laughs> Risk it. An essay. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't essay have a, a length, a certain kind of length that makes it an essay rather than a dissertation or a thesis? Mm -hmm. or a, mm -hmm. Is there a length to it? Excuse mm -hmm. my ignorance. No, that's, that's like an absolutely fundamental question, I think. Um, one of the things that uh, follows from the idea that the essay is partial, um, that it's merely an attempt, um, uh, a trial, a risk at something, um, is the idea that it can simply stop when it likes, in a sense, and it can stop abruptly. There's a very strange, sorry, this is slightly digressing, but there's, there's a very strange image that the poet William Carlos Williams comes up with to describe how essays work in an essay called An Essay on Virginia from 1925. And he says, the essay is like a child which does not continue. He means a child that dies, which is a very good image for a family doctor and poet to, to be using. But the essay stops. It starts and it stops. I don't think that there's a, I don't think there is a length there are, in a sense, kind of traditional lengths in the sense that um, the essay of something like, I think, five to seven or eight thousand words is probably very common. Um, but historically, some of the greatest essays are enormous. Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy from 1623 um, is something like, in the edition that I have, 
um, 3,000 pages. And it is absolutely an essay. And it's an essay that has started out much in the mode um, of the contained or self-contained essay and has simply got out of control. And I think that that's the other... It's not a corollary, but it's, it is the other side of like Williams's notion that it can just stop, and it's a very common notion in descriptions of the essay, that it can simply stop, that it's a kind of fragment. The essay also allows for the fact that it might not be able to stop, that this voice, this voice that says I, that insists on its I-ness, as it were, simply cannot halt, that it will just keep going. So I don't, no, I don't think that there's a, uh, th I don't think there's a definition in terms of extent. Um, you'd have to go somewhere else to, to pin it down. Does that make sense? I, but, I, but I think it's something that, that descriptions of the essay, and probably essayists, wrestle with all the time, which is why I say it's, it is a fundamental question. Um, and I think that for writers of criticism and non-fiction, non people have their lengths that work for them as well. I know that mine, is, as an essayist, is probably under seven or 8,000 words. So there, there are kind of forms that feel natural, to use a terrible word, to, to a lot of writers, I think. Um, and when I write criticism, when I write reviews, I know that a 1,000 words I can say pretty much everything I want to say in something that's only like that long. So, there were a couple of other, yeah, yeah. Oh, hello, um, slightly formless question, but I loved your sort of repeated imagery of a sort of vagrants mm -hmm. and drifting and setting off. And so I'm trying to make a question out of that, which would be about the sort of landscape that you yourself wander across and where you're wandering towards or if that makes any sense or just your fascination with vagrancy and only being able to carry a certain amount of something like that. Um, do, do you mean with literal landscapes? Yes, okay. why not? Yeah. yeah. Um, or yeah. personal ones. If you yeah. Prefer. I mean, th th this, this is a book in which I have not spoken about literal actual landscapes at all, um, probably for the first time in about a decade. Um, so um, it's but the essay that is structured as a walk is obviously a, a, a venerable form. The essay that's structured as a journey, um, the essay that is structured by its lack of structure because the author gets lost, um, has a long tradition. Um, Benjamin would be. Uh, perfect example of that. Baudelaire is a good example of it. All of the writers of the city of the modernist uh, period, the sort of long modernist period of about a century. Um, so I think there is something to do with the essay and, uh, and movement through space. But there's also, I think, something to do with um, the essay and mapping territory, mapping landscapes and inventing, as it were, a kind of fictional or somehow arbitrary, arbitrary maps for a territory. And the great, the great master of that would be Georges Perec um, in his Species of Spaces. These 
inventing these apparently kind of arbitrary structures by which you can describe. I think that one of the things that I'm always trying to do when I write about a place is to try to find, I talk about this in the book, but not in relation to place, in describing anything, is trying to find the metaphor that will allow me in. And I think that that's definitely true in writing about landscape. Um, I think that there are the writers who kind of ferret about at the very kind of granular, small level, dusty, muddy, mucky, filthy, uh, organic level of place. And then there are the writers who are not afraid of that, but are trying to find um, a structure that will somehow keep them sufficiently hovering above it that they can begin to describe it. Um, and W.G. Zabald would, would be a sort of example of that, in, uh, I think, in a way, who kind of hovers over this book uh, as well, inevitably, um, although he's hardly mentioned at all, um, where a, a voice becomes a way of keeping yourself somehow in touch with the place and sufficiently detached that you're able to to point to the, the landmarks, to point to the... Um, what's the phrase um, that Robert Smithson picks up on in landscape and tourism? I can't recall now. But it takes you, as it were, to use Smithson's phrase, on a kind of tour of the monuments. You know, Does that make some, some sense? I, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, is that I think that the idea of the essay as, as, as itself a sort of landscape can be really quite embedded in things or just as productively, it can be hovering at some remove. Um, and that can be just as uh, affecting, I think. This one over here. Thank you very much. It's really, really enjoyable um, to listen to somebody just using language beautifully. Um, <clears throat> my question is about uh, the, you talked about um, the cabinet. Uh, publication and the way that you sort of seek out, I might not have understood this correctly, but it was something about um, seeking out the amateur and and working around sort of a theme. But I think it was the amateur that intrigued me because um, from a, um, a kind of political stance in artistic practice, you know, we are, you know, we try to Work more and more with the amateur who and uh, all to uh, invite them to become authors in the practice. Would you like to say a bit more about that? Sure. I mean, in um, in terms of what we do at cabinet, it's um, it's partly a kind of practical and selfish thing, which is that we we discover that some of the people, you know, if if, if you begin to to approach culture and the way that one writes about culture at a kind of slant by saying, well, maybe the way to talk um, about certain kinds of histories of the body and self-presentation and the control of the body is actually, for example, to make an issue about noses or about hair or about skin, you know, to come in at, at a particular stratum of things. If you choose a theme I th theme is a sort of weak word. Um, I think that I prefer to think of those uh, titles as, as it were, kind of incisions into um, a cultural moment or incisions in a different direction 
uh, into a cultural, a longer cultural history. Um, we did a, an exhibition cabinet um, a few years ago at, uh, at, God, where was it? It was in London. It was on um, the slice, uh, in the, the history of slices in the hard sciences, in visual arts, in architecture, and so on. The idea that the idea of cutting was itself a mode of knowledge, um, of opening things up laterally or vertically was a mode of, uh, of knowledge. Once you begin to think about things in terms of um, slicing through a history, you begin to touch on, obviously, certain kinds of expertise, and you will find the scientific expertise that is a, a allows you to open something up, the philosophical expertise and so on. But we have simply always found that... Uh, somebody responds to us or we've come across the person who simply knows this stuff at the very smallest level. And just to give you a very ordinary example, we, we did a, um, a small symposium on dust um, about 10 years ago to accompany our dust issue. And the most interesting person we found amid all the fascinating uh, philosophers and cultural theorists, and we had great people like Stephen Connor, who's worked with us a, a, a lot, absolutely brilliant. The most interesting person was the housekeeper from the National Trust who had figured out how best to dust books in, the, in National Trust properties. Um, and I think that that's a kind of uh, guide, should be a sort of guiding principle um, that expertise exists all over the place. If that makes sense. And obviously... We were thinking about that partly having learned things from um, artists and uh, bigger projects that we'd worked on that were consciously trying to kind of open up the field of, of expertise. When we did um, another much bigger exhibition, uh, Curiosity, for Hayward's touring program um, in 2013, um, which opened first at Margate um, at Turner Contemporary, we tried very, very hard to find um, local expertise um, that would allow us to open up particular histories of the seaside and entertainment and so on. We singularly failed in that. It's one of my regrets about that as a, uh, as a project, is that we somehow didn't manage to, uh, to find that level, because I think it's kind of essential. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, it's been wonderful actually tonight listening to you kind of celebrate things like metaphor and description that um, as really as, as in, in, in terms of them being strong forms of writing because they're so often kind of bashed in um, art criticism and art writing so I wonder whether you could say a few more a, a, few, a little bit more about metaphor and yeah. description and what they mean for you why yeah, they still no, matter. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and um, oddly enough, I was told by somebody um, very recently, um, should I name the institution? Yeah, why not? Because some, somebody will tell me that this isn't, can't possibly be true. But I was told by uh, a student that at Goldsmiths, um, and I don't know what uh, program or department it was in, they had been told in their writing not to use metaphors um, because metaphors were... Uh, violent, that they did a particular kind of violence to the work, the object, or the individual that was being described, that was being compared to 
something else. Now, that's a banal and it's a slightly comical uh, example, but it is at the same time, I think, uh, an instance of something that happens a lot particularly, or that rather doesn't happen in um, critical writing and in particularly in a, in a lot of academic critical writing, that the level of the figural is ignored. And for me, the great critics, the smartest, the most rigorous critics, have been the people who are capable of first of all, making metaphor do the conceptual work. You know, that seems to me a sort of definition of what style is, right? Or what, in a way, what the essay does, which is to say that you get across so much of the hard thinking by encapsulating it in an image. Not, not hardening it, crystallizing it, or shutting it down in, a, in an image, but finding an image that is sufficiently um, integral but also open uh, that it allows your reader to think with you. Um, and that, I think, for me, is like, that's almost like a definition of writing for me. And I suppose that what it um, works against, what it's sometimes thought to work against, rather, is an idea of um, theory um, as something that, that avoids metaphor. You know, there was a, a stage about 20 years ago when if, if you got into a conversation with a Deleuzian and I was one of them for a while, um, they would tell you that everything that happens in Deleuze and Gattari's writing about the, the rhizomatic and uh, becoming animal and all of this stuff, that these were not metaphors. You must not describe them as metaphors. But to me, they were only interesting because they were great metaphors. And I think there's a sort of misunderstanding of, uh, of metaphor. It's not, um, it's not the sort of snappy way of pinning something down. It's a way of opening something. It's a way of opening an object or a work or an idea. So that seems to me absolutely essential in critical writing, as does description. And um, the arguments about description are... I, I don't know, when I started writing criticism, you often heard people say that... Um, complain that critical art critics wouldn't describe the work. Maybe you hear just as much that critic, critics being accused of only describing the work. You know, it's, it's criticism that's made, for example, of magazine reviews, like in Freeze, or uh, not, not less so in art form, but let's say more in this country, Freeze and Art Review and stuff, that um, all they do is describe in the absence of judging. But description is also a form of judgment. Choosing to describe something is a form of judgment. Um, description is, is both a form of rigor in terms of how you approach uh, an object, an artwork, or a body of work. It's a form of sensitivity. And, and this is really crucial, it's a form of generosity to your reader. Um, about 10 years ago, Sally O'Reilly, um, did, uh, who's writing, people may know, um, did a, a piece for, I think, Art Monthly, where she tabulated uh, just how much description was in various art critics' pieces in their reviews. And it turned out that some people were just like 90% description. And others, like J.J. Charlesworth, um, had uh, something like 5% description and 95% judgment or opinion. Um, these things vary all the time. And I don't think the description is just like a value in itself. Um, often, as a writer, describing the work would be entirely beside the point. 
or describing it visually would be entirely beside the point. But I think that um, description is usually essential at some level. And for me, describing artworks, just from a purely selfish writerly point of view, describing works of art for me was a training in how to describe the world. You know, um, I only learned how to write about stuff, life, things, objects, places, myself. Um, I only learned how to do that by learning how to write about art objects and literary objects and describe them to say, this is what this looks like or this is what happens here, if that makes sense. Um, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, I wasn't planning on reading that section. In fact, I've been wondering, um, in, uh, as we get closer to publishing the book, whether I would ever read those sections uh, in public or whether actually they should just exist on the page um, and I should address the book purely on a kind of uh, critical or intellectual level when I spoke about it. Um, but for some reason, that, that section presented itself. Um, I think that... Um, I think that I can't really say much about it, to be honest, um, other than that that is what happened when I sat down to write this thing. Um, and so it sort of had to be there. And I don't think that it's... It's a sort of thread that runs through the book um, that is partly about events in my life. It's partly about having a kind of history, a fairly limited history, you know, let, let's not get too self-pitying. Um, of depression um, and it's partly about the relationship of writing to that uh, as both kind of um, poison and cure in a way um, so it, run, it kind of runs hopefully sort of sinuously but maybe a little awkwardly through uh, the other material and I suppose the, the writers that I most admire are the people who are capable of, um, of having moments of vulnerability in critical or intellectual writing um, and those are fairly obvious for me it's like Roland Barthes or a writer that I have only really discovered pathetically only really discovered in the past couple of years um, Elizabeth Hardwick, great uh, American essayist um, whose novel Sleepless Nights people might know it was reissued a few years ago um, and I suppose what, what I most admire is that kind of Poise, I describe it in the book as a sort of ruined poise, that, that poise and precision, but somehow at the same time it's being undone. Um, so partly it's a kind of like writerly effort to try and make an object, a book that says something uh, on different levels at the same time. What's becoming clear is that I, can't re I don't know how to think about the question of distance and privacy. I've written this thing and now I have to do something with it. I think maybe you um, talk about the, the, the 
bubble, sorry. The, the bubble um, and, and there's a huge sense of distance and intimacy and I think that's in then the description of pick, getting the cable from the garden shed. Mm. I think it has kind of, it does tie. For me, the, the, the great challenge, um, my first book was a memoir um, and it is partly about kind of my, my parents who died when I, when I was quite young. And for me, the, the challenge was always, like from the start uh, as a writer, to, to write about stuff that was fairly uncomfortable um, in as precise and... And this is, in a way, this is what the book is about, um, is an attempt to try and analyse in other writers, but also in my own attitude to writing... Maybe this is entirely narcissistic of me, but hopefully, hopefully it's not. Hopefully it's more helpful than that. To try to analyse what that urge is. Why would you want to write about terrible things as if somehow they could be controlled and kept at some kind of aesthetic distance? But somehow for me, that's what writing is. Um, and so I'm trying to do both at the same time. Does that make any sense? Hmm. Yeah, well, I hope not, um, but I'm also a bit wary of terms like sentimental. When, when I read, oddly enough, when I read um, another section of this book, which is about style um, at an event, um, a freeze event recently, um, Deborah Levy told me that my idea of style, which I thought was fairly rigorous and, and kind, of, kind of interesting to me, was pure sentiment. So sentiment, there's something about sentiment in this. I mean, I can't say, because I've just finished writing the, the, the thing, I can't say what it is, but there is something about sentiment. Yeah, there isn't an easy... I don't have an easy answer to it, as a, uh, obviously, yeah. um, as, a, uh, as a question. But yeah, hope, hopefully what I'm trying to describe is a problem. Um, and a set of kind of contradictions in other writers um, and maybe in my own attitude to writing. Anybody else? Yeah. Thank you. Um, and yeah, I've really enjoyed hearing you speak and just profoundly moved actually by your writing. Um, and following on from what you just said, um, I was really struck by, you hinted at this relationship between um, melancholy and detachment. That was kind of one thing that I wondered if you could say a little bit more about. Um, and also the relationship to, of the fragment, mm -hmm. um, both to the essay form, but perhaps also to melancholy as well. Mm -hmm. um, yes, can I start at the end? Um, I think that the, the fragment as a form, um, so I think, maybe this is crude, but it seems to me that there, there are two kinds of writing about melancholia um, or about depression, as we might say today. And one of them is the voice that simply will not stop that I talked about earlier with, um, with Burton, with the anatomy of melancholy. And I think that that's, um, 
that's what one finds, for example, a, a particular strand in Samuel Beckett is, is about this voice that simply won't shut up, that's endlessly complaining. There is that great story by David Foster Wallace called The Depressed Person, which is exactly, in a way, about that. Um, it's described, she, the person is a she. It's probably based on Elizabeth Wurzel, um, author of Prozac Nation. And she's described from the outside, but it's very much kind of as a, a sort of interior voice of, of hers. And she cannot shut up about her own pain. So I think there, there is one kind of depressive literary voice that is unstoppable. It's a flow. And then there is another that because it's, happening, it's not happening to me now, and I'm not stumbling over this because I'm depressed. I'm stumbling over it because it's very hard to describe. It's a kind of halting um, and stereotypically melancholia manifests itself in speech through uh, a kind of halting, broken, um, painful language. It is literally, literally, physically hard to speak, um, which is hard to believe if you haven't, if you haven't experienced it. Um, but the fragmentist, the person who writes in fragments, is not just somehow naturally or, or uncritically repeating that on the page. They're turning that into an art form. They're turning it into artifice. They're turning it into a style. And that, in a way, for me, is one of the interesting contradictions um, or things that I'm suspicious of that I love about certain writers, like Bart or um, the great, now almost forgotten, um, English critic Cyril Connolly, who wrote in 1945 an amazing book called uh, The Unquiet Grave, um, which nobody talks about anymore, um, apart from, annoyingly, Alain de Botton. Um, uh, but it's extraordinary. It's this attempt to kind of describe this kind of state of, of midlife ennui or angst. Connolly was the first person in English to use the, um, the German uh, word, the existentialist word that the French existentialists had taken up from the German. He's the first person to popularize it in, in uh, English. And this book is written in fragments. And his problem is that he's too good at writing fragments. They become too perfect, too self-enclosed and they start to sound like jokes and in fact some of them are jokes and in fact one of them is very well known and it goes um, inside every fat man there is a thin man wildly signalling to be let out. It, that, that joke, that one-liner, that cliche comes from that book, The, Un the Unquiet Grave. And I think that's, that's a real tension in fragmentary writing that wants to describe a state of um, mental pain or disarray is that the form itself is too perfect. It's too self-enclosed. Each fragment says one thing and then it moves on and each of them, they start to feel like, um, it starts to feel like a sort of, you know, rosary, rosary beads or like it's, it, each one is this perfectly kind of enclosed pearl of pain or wisdom. Um, so it's very hard as a writer of fragments not to appear as if you are as if you are victorious over your pain. Does that make sense? 
I keep asking if any of this makes sense. It's a terrible um, thing that I try not to do as a teacher. Does that make sense? No. Um, but I'm, try, I'm trying to work this out as I, as I go along because I sort of describe it in different terms in, in the book. But I think that that's, in a way, sort of the, for me, the fascination of the fragment is that on the one hand, its kind of brokenness, its haltingness tells us one thing. But on the other hand, the fact that each of these things has been perfectly fashioned and that they are small, exquisite, to go back to the question about how long an essay is, that they are contained somehow um, undoes the work of expression, I think. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. 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 Thank you.